Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Sujata Fernandez. She's the author of a book called The Cuban Hustle, Culture, Politics, Everyday Life. It's published by Duke University Press just this year. The book is a collection of short, incisive essays written by a longtime scholar of Cuba. Together, they afford readers a perspective on what it means to hustle, to get by, and not just survive, but continue to create and thrive in today's Cuba. It's a series of snapshots that tracks the quickly shifting politics of culture on the island, and it's fun to read. Here's our conversation. Welcome, Sujata. It is such a pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you for having me on. So um, this book is a collection of short, incisive essays that is written in the voice of someone who's been who's been traveling to and working on Cuba for a very long time. So I was wondering if we could start by you just talking a little bit about your own relationship to the place. So I first went to Cuba in 1998. And before then, I had, um, I grew up in Australia, and I live here currently. um, And I had been a socialist activist in, in Australia, and had always looked to Cuba as somewhere that I thought they had uh, done a really good job in many aspects of um, socialist organization. And so I had read a lot about Cuba. I'd always been inspired by Cuba, but I had never been there. And so in January 1998, my sister, my younger sister, was working for Radio Havana. She spent a year there. She's a radio journalist. And um, she just suggested, she said, why don't you come and visit me and meet some of the hip-hop artists, rappers, people that I've met and I'm working with. And so that was how I ended up in Cuba about um, 22 years ago. And so I, my first trip to Cuba, I spent three months there. I stayed with my sister and I was there from January to March 1998. And my sister was living on the ration card and she was, you know, earning a salary in Cuban pesos working for Radio Havana. So through her and her friends and um, the people that I met in that first trip, I, I really had an interesting way to compare what I had read about Cuba, the vision of this um, socialist country that had got it right in some ways with the realities of what Cuba was going through at the time, which was an incredibly difficult period after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So uh, so those three months gave me, I think, a, a taste for uh, what was happening in Cuba at the time and also some of the contradictions and dilemmas that really fascinated me and compelled me to want to ultimately spend more time there, do research there. I ended up changing my dissertation. I had, was just about to start a PhD program in political science and I ended up changing my topic to work in Cuba to look at Cuban cultural production. And I had, so the next 20 years from uh, 1998 through to 2017, I made, you know, I lived in Cuba for some of that. I made trips back and forth. Uh, I kept in close contact with my friends and uh, artists and activists on the ground in Cuba. And I wrote, I wrote fairly regularly uh, every, you know, year or so I was writing articles about new sort of movements, artists, trends, things that were happening. And so when I made my last trip to Cuba, which was in December, in November 2017, I, I, I just sort of looked back and I thought, you know, over these last 20 years, I've 
been documenting all of these movements and from the early stages of the hip-hop movement, which, as I mentioned, my sister had, had introduced me to in its early days, to the, um, you know, to black visual arts movements, to uh, then, then later on some of the internet and uh, digital movements, filmmaking, and uh, all the way through to, you know, that, that last trip where I profiled um, hairdressers uh, in a movement for social change and young people in a rural province who had taken over the local ceramics factory and uh, made a cultural centre. And, and I just thought, you know, I have here a sort of record of 20 years worth of these kinds of different movements and organisations and, and a snapshot of, of how Cubans have created and hustled and worked, you know, very creatively tried to overcome the obstacles of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the tightened embargo by the United States, and come up with something novel and unique that also drew on what I do think was some of the, of the positive aspects of the Cuban revolution from the education system to the arts education to um, the the resources that were available for uh, for, for the local arts and culture scene drew on those on those resources and and so then I, I thought you know it, to me it sort of came together as this idea of uh, of, of a, the Cuban hustle and that's when I proposed the idea of the book to my editors at Duke University Press and yeah that was how the book came about. So um, this feeds right into my next question, which is actually about this idea of the hustle. Um, and it's one of the sort of strongest re- threads that runs throughout the book. Um, and the, I think it's what Cubans call resolver, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, yeah. So c- can you talk a little bit more about the hustle and resolver and, and what that means, especially in, in, in the Cuban context? So this, it sort of draws, the, the idea of the Cuban hustle draws on the reality of surviving through you know the difficulties of um of shortages and uh, economic difficulties for most cubans and this began in the special period so when i visited cuba in the period of the 90s this was an era uh when after the soviet union collapsed after cuba lost most of its export income and uh, was just facing a fairly devastating time, the Cuban state came up with this title, the special period, to refer to that era of the 1990s. And um, and so it was during this time when uh, Cubans had, you know, forced to become incredibly inventive just to sort of get by and to, and to have some sense of, of sort of pleasure and normalcy in their lives. And so all people have all kinds of stories about how oh, we used to use uh, crumbled up egg whites on our pasta to make up for cheese and you know, all the things that they used to do to, uh, to sort of stretch the resources they had available. And, and so this uh, moment is also one when there begins, as the Cuban state begins to emerge from that crisis of following the post-Soviet era, it, the, the collapse of the Soviet Union begins to come out of this period, um, one of the things that they do is uh, build... Uh, tourism and so they begin to develop a tourist sector which hadn't really existed in Cuba prior to the 1990s and um, and so all of a sudden there are tourists coming from uh, Europe from Canada from many western countries as well as from the Caribbean and other places and one of the things that this gives rise to is sort of hustling dollars from tourists and especially because during this period Cubans are still earning in the peso currency and 
there was also a dollar currency, a, a dual currency. And uh, of course, you could buy a lot more with dollars. It was very hard to get um, a lot of stuff just using vessels. And so, um, and so there began this sort of hustling of dollars from tourists and there arose a whole sort of um, a category of kineterismo or, um, you know, men and women making friends with, having sex with tourists and trying to hustle money from them, getting them to, you know, just take them to concerts or take them out to fancy restaurants or any restaurants at all or even, you know, uh, actually getting money in exchange for sexual services. So so there was a, this sort of kineterismo covers a very broad range of activities at this in this period. Um, but then uh, you mentioned resolver, and 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 that also is is the much broader field in which not just those Cubans who are directly interfacing with the tourist economy, but just Cubans on an everyday level have to find ways in order to um, to get things done. So if you know if the, a wall of their kitchen breaks down one day and they need to fix that wall. They can't, like, say, we in a, in a Western country like where we live might just go to the local hardware store, buy what we need, get someone to fix it. It's not an option in Cuba because you can't simply go to a store and buy tools, bricks, all of those kind of things are, are much, because of shortages, they're much harder to come by. And so this idea of resolver has, has emerged to cover the ways that you might have to find somebody who has a friend who works in a government construction agency and um, get them to try to secure the bricks and do them a favor by you have another friend you know it's, it's all very much about the underground networking that happens um, I mentioned in the book also just things like you know if you want to have butter with your toast in the morning again you can't maybe there is sometimes butter available in the dollar stores at that time but you uh you can't it's it's not so easy to to get things like that and so often people would have friends who say worked in the hotel industry and might be able to get a packet or two of butter from the buffet table so so just that's just sort of to give you an idea of how for most cubans um Securing uh, basic items is often a matter not of just going to a store and buying them, but of creatively uh, drawing on networks and contacts and, and really hustling. Life is about hustling to get the things that you need. Basic medicines, again, for many people uh, due to the embargo, a lot of basic medicines are hard to come by. And so sometimes what happens is people have to go to the black market, they'll have to pay a bit extra and get it there. Other times, if they know somebody who lives abroad and visits, they'll ask them to pick up the medications. Um, but this is just life. life. Life is about resolver. It's about trying to find a way to to meet your needs in means other than what we have as the general sort of uh, currency exchange for goods type of situation. Um, and so, sorry. No, no, go ahead. <laughs> so what I was just going to say was that that idea of the Cuban hustle is one that, um, that 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 I think has flown more uh, more generally into Cuban arts, Cuban culture, and Cuban social movements. And so, uh, I, I look a lot in the book at, at how um, even, for instance, when the hip hop scene began to emerge, and they didn't have a lot of the things that you know young people in in say the US or other places had to uh, samplers to make beats as the backing for the rappers um or they didn't have um 
even, you know, a lot of the, the background beats themselves were not available. And so they did things like using their voices to create background beats, mimicking beatboxing. Um, they used traditional instruments um, to, such as the bata drums as uh, to, to go underneath the, as, as the background music. Um, and Cuba's first hip-hop DJ, Ariel Fernandez, used to actually use Walkmans because he didn't have turntables. And so like that, using drawing on, on all of these uh, different uh, local resources as a way to make up for scarcity, I think, has been is something that both draws on that daily experience of hustling, of resolver, of kineterismo into the cultural and artistic sphere. Um, and it has also uh, made use of... of uh, and innovated in, in really interesting ways. Yeah, I see that in the art world as well, sort of the kind of um, sculpture and, and visual art where um, the idea of sort of taking found objects or, or, or making videos where, or, you know, making things with what is there becomes a really um, rich way to make a statement about exactly what you're talking about, right? So um it seems like it's uh, and kind of paradoxically, all of those things really flourished in the in the special period, the art and the music. That that's when sort of Cuba suddenly became, you know, so marketed and marketable. Yes, that's right. No, there was there was such an Im, uh, there was an impulse. There was so much people had to talk about, and this is again where you know one of the things I focused a lot on is the rise of the hip hop movement, and people just had so much to say. There was you know mm-hmm. all of this contradictory stuff happening. All of a sudden, their world collapsed, and they were struggling to understand it, and they were struggling to understand how young black people were struggling to see how in a country that promises racial equality, all of a sudden they felt they were being completely abandoned and. Um, and yet didn't have the, the language and the words to talk about it because they were supposedly in, in official discourse equal. Um, and so I think the arts in, in a sphere where, you know, they can't really um, talk about this stuff uh, at, a, say, a rally or um, at an open political meeting because of the conditions of, um, of a Cuban political system, the arts became this incredibly rich sphere in which people could uh, speak out and they could talk about what was going on for them. They could process meaning. They could create new kinds of meanings. Yeah, I, um, I, I want to talk about um, some really fascinating projects that you look at. And it seems to me that they bring together both this kind of, um, well, three things, that the kind of, you know, entrepreneurial opening and, and spirit um, this idea of resolver and kind of using what you have, but then also a kind of um, a notion of giving back to a community and and doing something kind of collectively more than individually. And I'm thinking of the the hairdressing project Arte Corte, um, the community center that you describe the the project Los Chapucerios, and also that program that teaches kids to make documentaries. Um, and those just sounded so um, you know above and beyond, right? These are people not just sort of solving everyday life, but really creating these kind of wonderful, very vibrant, um, you know, spaces and communities and, 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 and events. And so how did you learn about those projects and, and uh, tell us more about them? <laughs> yeah, so I um, actually mentioned the book Alex Halkin from American Media's Initiative. And she's actually somebody who re- reached out to me at some point and 
after I had written my first book, Cuba Represent, which looked at Cuban arts and culture uh, that came out in 2006. And so she reached out to me and, you know, just said, oh, I'd really love you to learn about the work we're doing and the groups and the um, people that we're working with. And so that kind of began a relationship where uh, she and I together actually wrote one of the pieces in the book, which was about um, uh, filmmakers and um, and AMI has done a lot of work with Cuban uh, young Cuban filmmakers and in and and so to me that began that relationship and those new sort of projects beyond the scope of what I had originally written about um, and and so Alex also introduced me to actually she was the one who introduced me to the Los Chapuceros and the group in Pinar del Rio who were had a, a local organization that was started in an abandoned ceramics factory and uh, the young people there had also started up a, a filmmaking group where they were making films. This is a very small town which was built around uh, the rhythms of, of the local food processing factory and when that food processing factory was slated to close because of environmental considerations, it was letting out all kinds of smoke into the air and making people sick. Um, they said, well, this is the lifeblood of our community. If this goes, our parents don't have jobs. These are like 14, 15-year-old kids. They said, you know, what's going to happen? So they actually, through this community project, they made a film about the uh, factory and they said rather than getting rid of it, we should remodel it to make it environmentally friendly. And so that was, you know, that they did it, trace the history of the factory, talked to the workers, talked about what the factory meant in the cultural life of the community. And, and in doing so, sort of gave a snapshot of the experiences of people growing up in, in rural areas of, you know, the lives of, of, of these people who, whose uh, whole experience centres around um, factory production and what that means today in a sort of post-industrial era. I think that the film they made captures so much about all of these things. Um, the other, the Hairdressers for Social Change project was actually, um, I was actually introduced to them by my friend Hilda, who I, you know, uh, somebody who I've stayed with uh, for the years that I've gone to Cuba and um, so she introduced me to Papito, who, who runs this hairdressing project. And what really struck me about both of the, the projects, the um, hairdressing project and the, uh, the, the ceramics project, is they were both started by people who, uh, people in the case of the um, ceramics factory project and Los Chapuceros and Papito in terms of the hairdressing project, these were both people who actually had started to um, uh, to create some wealth and through their entrepreneurial activities in, in this new Cuba, um, Papito had, you know, was a, quite a renowned hairdresser and was getting quite a bit of fame and uh, getting a lot of clients and so he was starting to increase his revenue and um, and and people in Los Chapuceros was a very well-known furniture maker who was starting to supply larger orders to hotels with his handcrafted wooden furniture and what was interesting to me was they both said you know we're not so interested to become rich this is not an ethos or something that we aspire to with this entrepreneurialism but, you know, we feel that we want to reinvest what we're making into the community and we want to 
think about, you know, how we can use that to start up new projects and spread out the wealth that we're earning. And, and to me, that was very much how we, we can't, it's, it's, I say in the book, we can't think of entrepreneurialism in the sort of Western individualist terms that it's usually used and in which it's usually applied to Cuba because people like Papito and people are not seeing things in that way. They're seeing that the kinds of work they're doing, that you know, they, they want to find ways to use that to support their communities. Yeah, I thought that that was really, um, it was it was very well demonstrated in the, in the ways that these projects came about. Um, so you, you've talked a little bit even um, in the in the minutes that we've been talking about, you know, the struggles, the ongoing contradictions, the bureaucracy, the repression, all of those kinds of things, all the things that Cubans navigate. But really, the book pays a lot more attention to projects like the ones that you just described. And it's, it, I, one comes away optimistic from that book. And I'm, I'm wondering if um, why you chose to narrate it from that perspective. Um, if you can sort of talk about the, the, the kind of the decisions that you made in representing Cuba in the way that it that it is represented in the book. Sure. So um, I think uh, any of these stories, uh, you know, as you said, they have to take into account all the obstacles that people face and the issues of censorship and repression. And, and those are just part of the stories. And people tell those stories and I tell those stories too. But but I also felt that the the all, the almost overwhelming focus of Western media in telling stories about Cuba has been about this sort of overbearing, repressive, all-dominating um, communist state and the ways in which it's repressed the abilities of Cubans to express themselves. Um, and we've seen that time and time again. And uh, I just felt that almost as a sort of antidote to that, those weren't the stories that I wanted to tell because I felt that despite and through and uh in conversation with um, state bodies and organisations and censorship, Cubans have still managed to produce uh, quite extraordinary and innovative artworks, social movements and um, and pieces of work and, so, and, and, and projects and organisations. And so that was really what I wanted to document to show that uh, that we're really only seeing one side for the most part from the media. And the only, you know, the, the predominant people that we see celebrated in, in Western countries and media are the sort of entrepreneurs or the dissidents like Ioanni Sanchez who, you know, have a fairly small following in Cuba mostly because for many years people just couldn't really access the internet and read her blog posts. And, um, and you know, they're much more well-known outside of Cuba than they are inside of Cuba. So, my interest was not so much the prominent dissidents and the prominent uh, people who are known as the face of, say, anti-authoritarianism or um, uh, confrontation with the Cuban government, because partly also because I felt that those people were a minority, that actually if we go just below the surface, we see a whole lot of really interesting stuff going on and it's not really captured in these binaries of the repressive horrible state versus you know the brave dissident on the other side and, and that's the narrative that I think has has shaped much of, of Cuban coverage in the media especially. So the stories that I wanted to tell were those of people who often collaborate with the government from the feminist movement Mahin to um, 
the uh, the, the sort of internet projects, the uh, like Ecuador, that you know, a sort of Cuban Wikipedia, all of these projects, which are too often, I think, dismissed as just being sort of you know state created projects that don't really have much value. I, I wanted to look at in a, in, a, in a different way and say, well, from the point of view of Cubans, what are they getting out of this? How do they feel, um, you know, how are they trying to use these different tools in order to say something about the society and the context we're living in? How might they even have things to offer us in Western countries who think that, you know, that there's somehow an unlimited freedom of the press and we live with so few restrictions. But um, what might uh, Cubans and their experiences with the internet, for instance, have to tell us about privacy and about the commons and, um, you know, how we can develop equitable and socially justice-oriented versions of um, of digital interface, for instance. Um, I think there are lessons that we have to learn which often in the frames that are used to describe Cuba as, um, as you know, just sort of people who, who can't express themselves, we don't often see those stories. Yeah, and in relation to that, I guess the question of race becomes really interesting. Um, it's interesting through the book, too, that the, the, it comes up and it changes over time. Um, I think that's because Cubans sort of ideas and and sort of relationship to the the issues of race change over time. You talk about um, anti-racist activism of Cuban groups. And in particular, you talk about the work of Norma Guillard. Is that mm -hmm. how you pronounce her name? Yeah. Guillard. Yeah. And so she comes up um, and she seems fascinating. And then I noticed that you dedicate the book to her. So who, who was she and why why is the book dedicated to her? So she was one of my uh, very close friends in Cuba. I met her on my very first trip. My, um, she was a very close friend of my sister and uh, we became very close on that, on that first trip. And she, as I mentioned in the first piece in the book, sent me off to Matanzas to her friend, the Afro-Cuban artist Agustin Drake, because she just said, you know, don't take everything you're seeing here in Havana as being the real Cuba. Go out to the provinces, go out and see something of the country and talk to people. And that was sort of, you know, my first interaction with, um, with her, with Cuba. It really shaped so much about everything that I saw and experienced in Cuba from then on. And she's somebody who, you know, she was a, a very... Um, uh, important LGBTQI activist. She was uh, a, a huge part of the Afro, or is a huge part of the Afro-Cuban movement. And, and a lot of the things uh, that I discovered in Cuba, I discovered through her, because of her, together with her. So we would, um, uh, you know, Norma is in her 70s. And, you know, even back then, 15 years ago, we would go together to rap concerts and we would. She, she was really a part of um, of my experience of Cuba and helped shape it in in very important ways. About um, five years ago, she was quite ill with cancer, and um, miraculously, through the Cuban healthcare system, they treated her and they didn't think she would survive, and she did. And it was just so wonderful um, that she pulled through that and that she continues to, she's a very energetic person and, um, and that she continues, and sorry, I didn't mention the feminist movement, Mahin is something that she was one of the founders of. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's people like her and, and their stories as herself, somebody who um, was, uh, came from a poor black family in 
the eastern province of Santiago de Cuba, but really um, grew through the revolution, through her involvement. She was one of the uh, workers in the literacy campaign. She had so many important experiences through the through the Cuban Revolution, and you know goes on to be somebody who is part of the emerging Afro-Cuban movement to draw attention to issues of race. And so she sort of had that that um, you know not completely uh, supportive, but um, but somewhat critical at times relationship to the Cuban government. And, and so that, to me, makes her somebody really emblematic of a lot of the themes that I'm that I'm talking about. But yeah, the dedication is 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 also just you know my own personal respect for her and relationship with her. So I want to talk about uh, change over time because one of the really kind of great things about this book, and I guess what I when I want what I'm getting at is the 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 form of the book is is a series of very short little essays. Um, right. And the interesting thing about that is that each essay, so they were written sort of over a space of time and each one is so current um, and Cuba changes so fast um, that it's like a little series of snapshots. Right. And so yeah. it felt to me almost like a, one of those flip books, you know, that like becomes in motion once when you flip through it. Um, and, and then I thought this is really this is a really a, a kind of nice solution to this problem that so many Cubanists face which is when you get to the end of the book and you're saying, okay, you know, this is the situation now, kind of doing that kind of thing, you know it's going to change in the next <laughs> three years, right? And you, right. Don't, you don't get a chance to do that. And so I thought, <laughs> oh, that's a, that's a really nice way to solve that problem is just to keep adding on, right? And I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if that was on purpose or a side effect, but, but I, it, yeah, I mean, just the, the idea of the, the form really fascinated me. Yeah, and I guess it wasn't really intentional in the sense that, um, you know, I got to, it's not like I started writing the essays with a book in mind. It just so happened that I got to 20 years on and realized I had these short pieces that I'd written over the years. And, and, and mainly because I often feel that within academia, you know, we write uh, either heavily theoretical essays or we write long books and um, we, we really writing mostly for each other, for other academics, for students. And so while I was doing my research and while I was writing the academic stuff, I also wanted to keep in mind how to communicate this to broader audiences. And that's why for forums like NACPA and The Nation and The New York Times and other places, I was producing shorter pieces with the hope of, of making these ideas a little more available to a general audience. Um, and so that was sort of how I ended up in the end with these with this collection of essays. But um, you're right. I mean, the thing is, each essay was very current and that presented some challenges for putting it into a format that um, is to be read today when when things relate so specifically to a particular time. So there was there was some rewriting that I had to do in order to still make the essays legible, say something written in. My first essay was written in 1998. It was after that trip that I made and I came back and I reflected on my visit to Matanzas with the artist Agustin Drake. And... Um, so, but it's, it's, you know, not only that, but it's also your own views change over time and you develop a different understanding of things. And so I had to go and add little bits here and there as well to, to you know, to sort of uh, 
help account for the ways in which my own views on, on Cuba have changed over time. But, but I think what's, what's interesting to me is that for the most part, um, the things that I'm seeing and observing today are the things that I was really feeling when I first went to Cuba that, um, you know, that struck me about the country. And I think one of those is that despite all of the contradictions of living within this moment of um, where you have to resolver, where you have to figure out, you know, the daily realities, despite this this difficulty, um, that there was something about the ethos of the Cuban revolution, about these ideas and values of collectivism, of egalitarianism, that even today still seem to come through. And there's something striking to me about that. Over 20 years of hardship, of U.S. propaganda, of embargo, of, of so much else that, you know, that Cubans have been forced to encounter and deal with. And, of course, another big thing is is migration and all the Cubans who've left. Um, despite all of these things, there are still certain kinds of, of core ideals that, that I see people coming back to in totally different spheres from Cuban feminism to a hairdressing collective 20 years later. Um, that's just something that has always struck me about Cuba. So what would you say is the ideal audience for your book? Uh, so I think that my ideal audience is, is people who have an interest in Cuba and are sort of seeking something beyond what they get mostly from, say, uh, the, the, the mainstream media, the kinds of reporting or um, uh, the sort of simple narratives and ideas and images or even, you know, the sort of uh, heavily cliched stereotypes of the tropical island and the dancing mulata and people who want to go beyond that because I feel like in mass popular culture and mass media, that's the view that's being presented of Cuba and especially as Cuba began turning to this sort of tourism side, then all of a sudden there were many people who wanted to visit Cuba and they wanted to hear the rumba and they wanted to see the... Um, you know, to buy the the portraits of the crooked streets. And it's so amid that whole sort of, um, I think, mass interest in Cuba, there's another story I'm trying to tell here. And I, and I think that to those people who, who have that opening, who don't come in with a mindset of, um, you know, I just want to learn about how Cubans are trying to free themselves from tyranny, but are actually opening to open to saying, you know, this is a society that I might not fully understand, and maybe there are things that I can learn from this society as well. I think those are the kind of people that I would hope this book would speak to. Yeah, I, I did notice, and I really appreciated the way you rather quickly dispensed with, you know, Fidel, the transition, all of those things that that the mainstream media really focuses on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just said, no, you know, that's not really the story here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so I've taken up lots of your time. I want to ask you one last question. I don't think you wrote about this, but I'm curious if you've heard anything about how Cuba's weathered the whole pandemic, um, the the COVID crisis. So I've, I've had a lot of contact with friends in Cuba um, and, and, you know, heard various things from them. Um, you know, I think one thing that's that's quite sad is just how difficult things are. I mean, tourism, the sort of uh, twin difficulties of, on the one hand, the loss of tourism and people just, um, you know, all the income that comes in a whole lot of different industries from tourism 
has really, you know, had a devastating effect for Cubans in what was already, you know, a struggling period. And then the sort of Trump administration's war on Venezuela and their limiting of oil supplies to Cuba, I think, has just had another impact um, in, in limiting what was already, you know, much lower imports of oil, basic supplies that, that Cuba really needed. So, so there are stories of, of, you know, just how difficult it is. And I think, you know, sort of have to acknowledge that these are hard times for Cuba. They're trying to slowly figure out how to reopen while keeping the virus um, in, at bay, as they've managed to do up till now. But, um, but, but that, that has come with an economic cost. And unfortunately, Cuba's not in the position to have those, you know, those basic economic resources that they can, you know, really stay well afloat while also employing the public health measures that are needed. Um, but at the other hand, you know, I think they've done extraordinarily well with containing the virus, with keeping the numbers of deaths low, with keeping um, the numbers of infections low. They've uh, sent teams of doctors to hotspots from you know, Italy and all over the world to help combat the virus. And, and I think that's given a huge boost to people to see um, the ways in which those Cuban doctors are welcomed and, and the kind of role they can play in a public health setting. Um, and I also just think, you know, Cubans are proud of their very high public health literacy. And I see that in comparison to when they look at the United States and they see, you know, the, the out of control virus infections there and the complete abandonment of, uh, you know, any public health strategy by the Trump administration. I think Cubans feel very proud of, you know, they, they, they in emails to me, they say how, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, listen every day to the broadcast on television and we listen and we wash our hands and we wear our masks and, you know, we're very diligent when it comes to what we have to do and, and it's partly just the very clear messaging of the government, um, the provision of basic things like PPE to the extent that they have it. Um, that has, I think, helped Cubans uh, come together in a way that, you know, they haven't, uh, you know, led to uprisings in, uprisings in the streets like we've seen in many places where governments have completely failed their citizens. But I think there's a, yet again there's a kind of rallying behind the collective that has resulted from the government's very serious science-based approach. You know, they've even come up with a vaccine that they're testing, which is something that I think, you know, a lot of other countries wouldn't be able to, to do in, in addition to um, to also managing the public health response and dealing with the economic crisis. So I would say overall, while, um, you know, that economically it's a very difficult scenario for many Cubans, I think that there are grounds to feel, you know, somewhat of hope that, you um, that they'll be able to pull themselves out through, uh, you know, through trying to uh, slowly bring back some kind of tourism and interactions. And, you know, also if uh, Joe Biden is elected in November, there, you know, there's also, I think, some hope that there will be renewed interactions between Cuba and the U.S. that could once again help them rebuild the economy. Yeah, an ongoing story, yes. right? See, that's right. <laughs> There's no, no final point to it. <laughs> thank you. Right. Um, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed chatting with you today. Me too. Thanks for having me on.